Welcome to the Baby in the Bathwater podcast. I'm your host, Annie McCasland-Pexton. Join me as we rethink wellness in the time of COVID. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations in so-called Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land and note that sovereignty was never ceded. I pay my respects to Wurundjeri elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the traditional owners of the lands on which my guests and listeners reside. Welcome to season two of the Baby in the Bathwater podcast. This episode was supposed to be part of season one last year. In fact, my interview with Andy was recorded in May of 2021. But in the meantime, life intervened. Melbourne had the world's longest lockdown, which brought with it homeschooling and thus the temporary loss of my sanity and free time. I've finally recovered enough to jump back into production with this and a bunch of other exciting interviews I recorded last year, as well as some fantastic new ones already lined up for 2022. Andy Fellows is an ex-New Ager and online cult survivor who has been creating YouTube videos critiquing many prominent figures in the New Age cult industry, as well as chronicling his own journey and recovery from the toxicity of New Age ideology, particularly as part of the Teal Tribe with Teal Swan. Andy and I had a great chat for over two hours, so I've split it into two episodes. Part two is available as part of my subscription-based content, which you can receive for $3.99 per month via anchor.fm forward slash Annie hyphen McCasland hyphen Pexton forward slash subscribe, or just use the link in the show notes. As you can imagine, Andy and I have both evolved in our thinking over the last nine months, so we're going to do an Instagram live chat to check in on any updates since we last spoke. Keep an eye out on our Instagram pages for the saved video. You can find Andy on Insta at Andy Fellows, A-N-D-E-Y-F-E-L-L-O-W-E-S. And you can follow the podcast at The Baby in the Bathwater. Without further ado, here is part one of my interview with Andy Fellows. So um, I would like to start with, I found you on Instagram. I can't remember how, but I had been following you for quite a while. And then you had a post, the post that made me reach out and say, Hey, do you want to be on the podcast was one that you did on the 4th of May. Um, are you a star Wars fan? I I am. Although I didn't clock that it may be relevant to my post. (laughs) Well, uh, may the fourth be with you. That's all. Right. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, I'm in a heavily Star Wars indoctrinated household, so May the 4th is like a public holiday. Um, so your post of the 4th of May on Instagram says, swearing off of spirituality after spiritual trauma, learning to trust spiritual matters again after involvement in a destructive spiritual or religious group can be difficult. It is no surprise then that many who leave situations of spiritual abuse take up a position of atheism and then your caption goes into it in more detail and says lots of very thoughtful things and I was like right I need to talk to this guy (laughs) (laughs) because I have been in multiple groups with charismatic spiritual teachers that I ended up having to leave for various reasons And so if I talk about something, I think people who know me are going to be like, oh, she's talking about so-and-so or this group or that group. I'm like, yes and no. Like it could be any of them. There, Mm. there's so many similarities. Uh, it's kind of scary. So 
I, I've been through that process a number of times of having been studying with a group or a person and learned lots of really interesting stuff from them kind of in terms of spirituality and personal development and then having some series of problematic interactions and gradually extricating myself. And then it's like, oh, what do I do with all of this information and techniques and ideas that I, in most cases, it was the person that was more problematic than the ideas. But but the longer I sit with it, some of the ideas obviously are problematic as well. But this concept of, of sorting out, like uh, you talked about in something I was listening to recently, Descartes' apples. Mm. Right. And sorting out if you've got one rotten apple, you have to pick them all out and, and examine them individually one by one to see whether the rot had spread to each of the mm. other apples. So mm. I, I very much identify with that. And my process was, in most cases, to completely leave aside everything that I had learned in that group for quite a long time until I recovered from the interpersonal drama and then gradually maybe a couple of things would would make it through the filter to say oh no i i can keep practicing this practice or this mm. idea and often that idea that filtered through was not something that was original to that person or group anyway because so many of these groups borrow i'm going to be um, kind and use borrow rather than steal uh, borrow ideologies from other practices and traditions and practitioners. So I, yeah, so that's why the the first reason I wanted to talk to you was to get some insight on that process, what you went through, what I can personally use to help sift through which which apples are worth saving, which is kind of the whole point of my podcast. So for background, the, the, my podcast came out of having to extricate myself from a lot of spiritual stuff over the last year through conspiracy theories and racism, anti-Black Lives Matter ideology, all that kind of stuff, and going, oh, shit, there's so much problematic stuff in these groups. And then just completely leaving all of my spiritual practices aside because it was so intermeshed with these groups that had all these problematic ideologies. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, do I, I actually still want to have a spiritual practice, but everything is so tainted for me. So I guess that's my question for you. Very long-winded. How do you deal with the taint or the the, the spread of the rot from the problematic ideas to other ideas that might not be problematic, but that in your mind you associate with that person or that group that was problematic. I think for me, a large part of, of, of beginning and only beginning really at the moment to come to reevaluate some of these spiritual ideas for myself and my own sort of beliefs, you know, personally I, I, I've come at it from a point of view where I've had to, how to describe this. I've basically, I swore off for a long time, as you mentioned there from my Instagram post. And, um, and it took me a very long time to reach a point where I was even comfortable considering um, looking at any of this stuff again, because it literally just set me off like 
like trauma response kind of a thing. Um, and uh, in the in the time between swearing off and now beginning to explore some of these things to see if there is anything salvageable, I've built um, a uh, a real familiarity with what I believe would be best termed the skills, not the like the the built in um, capacity for, but the skills of critical thinking and skepticism. I think we often think of people as skeptics um, and some people are skeptics, some people aren't. Um, but I, I really think it's a skill that if we can practice critical thinking, if we can practice uh, thinking of things in a grounded way and looking for evidence where possible and not letting our own biases get in the way of the conclusions we draw, then it's sort of, you can create a safe space for yourself wherein you can explore these things without them going uh, badly as often, you know, there's always the risk of these things uh, being taken too far or being uh, damaging in one way or another, you know, but um, I, so for me, it's, it's been about developing that sort of approach to ideas that is a little bit more critical is willing to pick things apart a little bit rather than just jumping in because it makes me feel a certain way, you know? Um, yeah. Does, does that answer your question? I'm, I'm not sure yeah. it does. I've, my so, brain's no, kind of gone it's, off. It's good. Um, <laughs> What I'm thinking is, do you think there's room for spirituality and skepticism to coexist in the same person? Yes, I do. Um, I, honestly, I feel like um, you could, the, the way I see it is the, these ideas, the spiritual ideas, the religious ideas and stuff, there's, they are in some way that in some way there's an irrationality to them. And I'm not saying that as like a pejorative. I, I think there's a value in a degree of irrationality sometimes. And I, I, I'm speaking for myself here. I, people I always encourage on my channel, you know, feel free to disagree with me. I'm probably wrong more often than I think I am. Um, but this is my approach to this anyway. I think there's a place for irrationality and there's a place for rationality. And I think that rationality when used well can create a space for the irrationality to be if that makes sense so I feel like with with regards to skepticism and, and spirituality coexisting I feel like yeah definitely it can be the case that you can be a spiritual person but still have a degree of skepticism or a degree of, of critical thinking that enables you to stay safe that enables you to navigate a lot more of these you know um alternative realities if you like um when when it comes to you know conspiracy theories when it comes to uh cults and you know high control high demand groups in general um i would say mass movements is a good umbrella term for destructive and uh, constructive uh large groups with a particular emphasis on 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 an ideology to navigate those kinds of things with um with your skepticism with your critical thinking to where you see, okay, if I take this too far, I'm gonna end up getting in trouble or I might end up throwing in with, with a group of some kind. Um, but if I take this piece and I practice this for myself privately and I'm aware of where it might be overstepping, then I think, you know, why, why wouldn't there be a way for, for spirituality and skepticism to coexist? I think as well with skepticism, there's often this idea that you're not a skeptic if you believe things or if you believe certain things but I, I feel like skepticism as I say is more a skill than it is an identity an identity label or anything you know we might identify with skeptic but yeah 
Yeah. I feel, I wonder if that's a bit nebulous. No, no, it's good. It's interesting because I don't identify as a skeptic because in my mind, I associated skepticism with um, people who are very hard blind at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. Mm. And I'm, I'm much more in the middle ground, but I feel like I've always had one foot Mm. in each camp because my background is in science and law. So I'm very skilled in in rational thinking and critical thinking and and i was a very reluctant entrant into the spiritual world and and a late entrant it was really only in my 30s so i I was an atheist for the first half of well up until i was about 30 and then gradually got into personal development which led to spiritual development but i i always kind of only had one foot in and one foot out because of the background in in science and law so in that way I've not gotten as deeply involved in any of the groups that I was in Mm. because I was always keeping kind of one foot out the door because I could I could see the problems but I also wanted access to the information Mm. and what I'm trying to do now is like go oh wow these groups like almost all of them are are problematic just because of the nature of the human condition really that when you Mm. get a person in a position of leadership or or a group that all is invested in a shared mindset it, it creates a problematic situation so how to have a spiritual quest for, for, you know, knowledge and information and experience without having to deal with the problematic aspects of groups and leadership. And then when I say groups and leadership, I'm not just talking about the spiritual community because groups and leadership can be cult-like in any realm. Like a law firm is a cult for sure. So, you know, my experience is extricating myself from the culture of the legal profession are just as applicable. Um, and so it's, you know, I'm at the point where I'm like, how to have a sense of community and spiritual practice without having to get involved with um, humans because <laughs> they're so problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose for, from my point of view, um, and, and often when I talk about sort of movements and groups in general, I, I reference Eric Hoffer's The True Believer, which is a fantastic book um, on, on this. It was written quite a while back, but a lot of it stands up today when you think about the way he speaks about things. And um, one of the things he talks about in there really is, is it's, well, he talks around this, but leaning on something that he's saying, I think there's a, there's a conversation to be had around the... Uh, individuals needs and what the group does for the individual psychologically emotionally and I think if we are able to understand ourselves and know ourselves um, be it through you know uh, like psychoanalysis or simply counseling I found counseling um, which is the term we use in the UK for for I guess like a softer form of therapy. I found that to be really useful for me. If we can have that self-knowledge and we can get on good terms with ourselves, you know, um, the idea of individuation here where we get to know ourselves deeply and work through a process where we become an individual and aren't so um, 
enmeshed with everybody all the time you know and I think that's something that as you grow up that's quite a natural way to be sort of relying on family and so on but then you get to a point where you do have to grow up but I think at the moment our society the way that we are at the moment there are a lot of people who haven't reached necessarily that point because society's just like here you go you're of a certain age have all of this stuff that you now need to deal with and, and it can make it harder to become an individual in a, in a deep sense of the word where like as individuals we know ourselves and we know our minds and we know uh, what our values are and all those kinds of things and I think just looking back um, at my experience with this I was 19 when I got involved um, where I got into the new age and then got involved sort of following Teal Swan and all that stuff I, I didn't know myself. I was grieving and I was going through a lot of, of difficult uh, things emotionally, which was a significant part of why it got me. Um, and I would say that, you know, if you look at Stephen Hassan's work on, on, on cults, it, you would probably say that that is the majority of why it got me. But I'm also fascinated by that small component of why was it me like, why did I get pulled in when someone else might have not got pulled in if we were both grieving, let's say. Um, and I think, you know, for, for, for myself on that, I've now realized since I've been through all of this stuff, a large part of my focus on, in recovering has been getting to know myself deeply, has been getting to know my own mind in a way that I didn't before. Um, and I think when it comes to community, to come back to your question, sort of going down a hundred different uh, paths there, but um, to, to back to what you were saying about community and like how we can we can have these communities without like it becoming a cult or it becoming problematic in that way. Um, I think if as individuals we know ourselves and like have a good relationship with ourselves and are aware of the red flags of cults and what cult-like relationships begin to look like, it's easier to navigate that area. Um, that's one of the reasons that I am usually not involved in communities these days. I keep myself away from them because I, I've read this stuff, I've been through it enough. I'm like, no, thank you. I see it, I see it a mile off and I, I withdraw. But like you, I'm, I'm asking that question at the moment, how can I start to engage with groups of people in a way that is like not going to lead me down that path and I, I do think at this point it is about if I if I know myself and I know my mind and I'm in connection with myself and uh, I know what my values are when something happens I'm going to be less likely to uh, throw in with what's happening in that group um, I'm going to be less likely to engage in that way uh, that I would have done before when I, you know, I've seen it happen time and time again. I've been, I've been around people that I, I uh, care about or, or agree with on something or feel connected to in some way. And people start acting in a certain way. And then I fall in with that. I think that's human nature anyway, isn't it? But I think the thing with cults is that it does seem to turn human nature against itself a little bit um, in that way. So yeah, I, I, again, feel maybe a bit nebulous there but like for me it is about that knowing myself there and and then when I am involved with people I can maintain boundaries intellectual boundaries emotional boundaries and not get over invested over involved in other people totally and I find that the more you're able to know your boundaries and assert your boundaries you'll figure out who is problematic because when you assert your boundary with somebody problematic, they don't like it. And that's a, a real good red flag. Mm. 
Yeah, it can be, yeah. <laughs> and I, I love that you're espousing the power of counseling, which is what we call it in Australia as well, um, right. or psychotherapy. It doesn't have to be with a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist. In Australia, a lot of the best counselors are actually social workers. Mm. Um, and I've been doing that regularly for years and 100%. It's, it's been the best thing that I've done. And thankfully, I have a counselor who is spiritually inclined. So mm. she will incorporate kind of generic spiritual concepts into our counseling to the degree that I'm comfortable with. But there's there's no dogma or ideology or or particular lineage associated with it. But, you mm. know, I, I'm allowed to have a spiritual self-identity in that space, which is helpful. But she's also been fantastic at kind of highlighting the red flags it, like you know, she only has what I say to go on, but a number of times I've mentioned people or groups over the years. And she's been like, Hmm, I don't get a good vibe about this person. You know, maybe this is not aligned for you. I don't think this is a good match for your, you know, and she would even say, you know, your vibration, Mm. um, which, you know, can be a problematic word. We have now learned but yeah so that's been really helpful of having that external accountability to somebody who who is a neutral observer of the situation and saying maybe this is not the group that you should be involved in and I'd be like yeah yeah I know I know I know I know I see all the red flags but I really want to learn about this or that idea or or process or or you know um secret information you know there's so much of this idea in spirituality that that people are these gatekeepers to this you know mystical esoteric knowledge that no one else has and so you have to study with them to get it even if they're Mm. a total asshole so I've definitely fallen into that trap more pursuit of of knowledge than it hasn't been so much about the desire for community, I guess, because I have a good community in my personal life, thankfully. But um, yeah, for me, it's just been the quest for knowledge. But I've gotten to the point where I'm like, no knowledge is that important or that special that I have to put myself through these interpersonal relationships to gain it. There is always another way to get the knowledge if if it's worth having. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think... Um... Stephen Haston's bite model uh, that's one of the points on it I believe insider versus outsider doctrine um yeah one, one of the one of the many signs of a destructive group um highly recommend that for anybody who's, who's looking for like a really good resource on how to determine whether what they're involved in is is dodgy or not is potentially a cult or not Stephen Haston's bite model it's, um available on his site on on uh the uh on, on google you can just type in bite model b-i-t-e um, and it will come up there. Freedom of mind, I think his website's called. Great. I heard him interviewed on a little bit culty, the podcast. Have you listened to that? I haven't. No, no. it's really good. <laughs> it's really good. Um, yeah. So I've been meaning to look that up, but yeah, that I definitely recommend a little bit culty. And I think it was listening to him on that, that I came across this idea that it's not just groups that are culty but that you can have cult-like relationships with an individual. Mm -hmm. And that was a real 
eye-opener for me and I started seeing it in friends who are in kind of abusive relationships that their relationship yeah. with their partner is actually a cult-like relationship that was mm. um, mind-blowing and and quite disturbing and of course then you get the the political aspect as well you know these kinds of behavior the thing is is uh, as I as I sort of alluded to I think before like as far as I know, and I and I was want to make it really clear, I'm not an expert on this kind of stuff. I've done some reading. I've had the personal experience. I'm sharing my point of view. I always try to cite my sources so people don't just take my word for things. But one of the things that I have noticed with this is that it is really human nature turned on itself, which means that wherever you have humans, you have the potential for this kind of a thing to happen. Um, so it is important to to be aware of it, I think, so that you can recognize those red flags. But it is, like you say, it's relationships, it's 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 political groups, it's it, anything, anything at all. The nature of the focus of the group doesn't um, necessarily give you much of a clue as to whether it could be cult-like or not. The belief system of the group is by the by, really. You could turn anything into a cult if you are that way inclined, you know. Absolutely. And one thing that I've noticed about groups and communities that I've been involved in is the more decentralized they are, like if they don't have a clear leader or they have like more of a committee of leadership, that they're much less likely to become cult-like. It's, it's, it seems to be where the power is concentrated in a pyramidal mm. structure that, mm. that it is much more likely to become cult-like. You say that, and that is a really interesting point. It makes me think of like Watchtower and Jehovah's Witnesses, where you you still do have a group of people, um, although they're obviously a lot less than the worldwide membership. But that's a good a good example of where it is um, almost the other side of what you're saying there. Like, yes, it's still centralized, but there's a number of people in the governing body there who are responsible for the group and you know I, I would also agree with former extra Jehovah's witnesses that it is a destructive group uh, possibly deserving of the name cult actually I would say definitely deserving of the name cult or the, the, the title cult um, but but that said also I have seen cult-like behavior and this is where you get into like I guess scaling back the intensity of what we mean by cult when we say cult and we're referring to something like Jehovah's Witnesses or you know like your your heaven's gate or your jonestown and that's what most people think of i think when you say cult but those same dynamics as you say appear in less um less concentrated groups less um sort of controlled groups within relationships in movements that are largely perhaps not um not so damaging or not so destructive um you know i mean i've seen it I'm I'm very left leaning when it comes to politics, but I've seen it in the left as much as I've seen it in the right, especially during the pandemic. It's incredibly polarized and we don't have to go down that road. But um, just as an example of something that you can you see this kind of uh, behavior in, um, it's 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 very, very common, unfortunately, um, even in groups that aren't, you know, super, um, super focused and, and super uh, concentrated around a specific leader. Yeah, I think I'm curious with the Jehovah's Witnesses and stuff, is there one person at the top and then a committee below them or is the committee the highest? No, that is the governing body. The I think I'm trying to remember exactly how many there are between eight and 12. I can't remember now. Um, okay, but interesting. there's yeah, all men, uh, as you'd um, imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think 
I, with my observations, obviously there's always going to be an exception to the rule. And this is course, just my yeah. own theorizing. I haven't <laughs> looked into it very far. Um, but the other thing I've noticed is it tends cult like environments tend to arise where there's a lack of external accountability or oversight, mm. you know, outside of the, the body itself. And that's most spiritual groups. Mm. And something that I've kind of said to myself as a guideline is I'm not going to get involved in a, a teaching, like, you know, taking a training or something with a, a group or a person, unless they have some form of external accountability, whether that's like an association that they're a member of or some external body that if you have a complaint, you can get outside arbitration because that is missing in, in most of these cases. Mm. I mean, that's the trouble, isn't it? This is as far as an industry goes, and especially within the new age movement, if you like, this is an industry it's an unregulated one. You know, James Janney has, has made a few videos recently um, on that and uh, makes a great, a, a great point around that, really. This is an unregulated industry. It's, it's cowboys, people just doing whatever they want because it doesn't quite uh, qualify as like, not always anyway, like mental health therapy or, or, or whatever, psychology. And it doesn't quite qualify as being religious in the overt sense of 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 what we think of as organized religion so it sort of occupies that gray area and, and there's a lot of things that go sort of slip in under the radar there it's uh and, and in america is obviously the the place where a lot of these things are happening um intensely there's lots of this there yeah i got burned recently so i i had a group that i was involved with that i extricated myself from because there were so many conspiracy right-wing conspiracy theories going on and I'm not a right-wing person I'm very much a, a left a lefty as well and so I, I I extricated myself but I still wanted to continue learning about the stuff that I was learning about which was like shamanic practices ancestral work you know working with ancestors spiritually and that kind of thing so mm. I found a group that was based in North America and uh and I signed up for like a six month online class with them and I'm like this is going to be great because I'm not going to have any of these problematic political stuff going on and I can just really get into the content and then that group just totally imploded just due to interpersonal stuff and I was like oh nope going to the left actually does not protect you from this stuff <laughs> I think yeah. the trouble is so oftentimes, um, so often these kinds of uh, things position themselves as outside of, of politics. But I, I'm coming to wonder whether that's possible, especially these days where it is always so interwoven and, and people find it so difficult to separate uh, one thing from another. Um, but then I don't think that's new really either, is it? I mean, just look at, at, at evangelical Christianity in America, for example, that's a classic example of politics and, and, and uh, religion being inter interwoven, at least maybe not from their point of view, overtly political before Trump, but um, certainly with their approach to, you know, LGBTQ plus people and so on, that there are political implications there. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky. It's tricky to, to separate politics from religion belief spirituality in general it's it's hard to do that and i think sometimes i think at least from my point of view with this i think because i see all of this as a very personal thing and that's somewhat a response to the experiences that i've had with groups um politically um i say groups politically 
ideologies and people I've been around. I haven't necessarily thrown in with a group politically at any point, but um, around certain ideologies, around certain beliefs and stuff. Uh, and then with the spiritual stuff, I've definitely withdrawn into it being a very personal thing for me. And I'm like, right, if I'm listening to someone else and I'm taking what they're saying, I need to bear in mind that it's coming from an ideology. In many ways, it's the iceberg of an ideology. And I need to I need to remember that if I agree with them on that, that doesn't mean I'm agreeing with them on other things. And actually, we might agree on that thing for very different reasons. Um, and so it, it really is about navigating my own personal values or my own personal beliefs with that kind of stuff. Um, so that when I do have a belief, political or spiritual, if it if they do blend, I'm I'm navigating that for myself. I'm 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 uh, examining it based on my own integrity. I'm not accountable to someone else in that way where I'm being told how how things should be done. You know, I I think all of this stuff is very it should be a very personal thing from my point of view. That reminds me of something that I heard you talking about. Take what resonates. You mentioned when uh, spiritual teachers say, take what resonates and leave the rest and how that can actually be problematic. Yeah. And that's a good point to raise, given what I was just saying. It was kind of similar. Um, I think, I think, ultimately taking what resonates is built on somewhat of an, an approach wherein you are taking what resonates on the basis of your intuition uh, on a feeling you have on on a notion of of some sort of resonance or alignment you know these are words that we use a lot um in these kinds of circles i say we i still don't really include myself in in these circles at the moment um definitely only just dipping my toes again. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a difference there. And the difference is purely within how you process that information. I think, you know, if you're coming across an idea, uh, a notion, uh, uh, an assertion from someone, and you take that, and then you explore it, and you listen to both sides, and you, you do some research, um, not in the do your own research conspiracy theory way, but as in you read the literature on it if it's available to you and you know you explore these things and then you consider that in reference to some other things that you know looking for evidence where possible being open to being proven wrong where possible this is what i'm talking about with like the skepticism and the critical thinking aspect of things that is a very different process than someone you know saying oh you've got such pleiadian energy and then you going okay well that that resonates with me um, you know, that therefore I, I must be in some way Pleiadian or taking that on and developing a belief around that. And I don't want to straw man that, that approach to things. There's an element of, oh, that must be true. Um, but it, often this corresponds more to the emotions that arise as a, re as a response to what's happened versus um, a, a process of deliberate seeking information, uh, looking for where you might be wrong, looking for where... Uh, you might have sort of played into your own biases and blind spots a little bit, you know, that's what I'm talking about. When I say like, <laughs> I, I have a real gripe with take what resonates. I'm saying I have a gripe with people using their intuition to discern what's true because your intuition, as far as I'm concerned, although that there's a degree of like, I guess like a, a an instinctive aspect to it of like when you smell something that's gone off, your, your intuition says don't eat that, you know, like a gut feeling um, versus like, oh, 
this is true. I know this is true because I've channeled it and my fifth dimensional guide has told me that this thing's true. Um, and I know it's true because it really resonates with me right now. Um, that's not really, how, how can you, how can you be so sure? You know, that's always my question with this stuff. How can you be so sure? Um, now there's another bit of nuance here. Cause this is just nuance central. This, this thing is, um, I think there's definitely a case to be made for the belief in untrue things. Um, but again, there has to be that critical thinking and that skepticism to ensure that if you are believing in something that's potentially untrue, and of course, no one that I've ever met wants to believe something that's untrue. So in that sense, my argument for the belief in untrue things is more a case for tolerance than it is for the belief in false things, um, as in for other, what other people believe, you know, because a lot of people that come into this stuff from an atheist point of view are very anti anything, believing anything that's true. Um, I'm saying there's a possibility for there to be a benefit um, to believing something that is untrue, uh, even if the, the reason that you're benefiting from it isn't what you think you're benefiting from, you know, uh, be that placebo effect or something else that we don't understand necessarily. Um, but there again, when you get into that area, it's still important to ensure that you've done your due diligence with regards to ensuring that what you're investing in as an idea, as a belief is um, safe to, you know, for you, it's not going to lead you down a dark path with your mental health or, or into a community that's going to take advantage of you or whatever, you know, um, an example of a belief in an untrue thing is I'm, you know, I'm agnostic. I don't necessarily believe that there is a God. I, I don't really care what other people believe. And for me, it's that thing of like, well, if it is untrue, uh, there may still be a benefit in believing it's true. So I'm just going to stay out of that, you know, just live and let live kind of an attitude. Um, and I think with Take What Resonates, to just tie that back into that without droning on for a million years, um, going back to the Take What Resonates thing, you may resonate with something that's untrue and benefit from it. Um, and, you know, maybe not for the reasons that you believe it's beneficial, but you may still benefit from it. And to that, to that end, I think it is also important to, again, bring that skepticism, bring that critical thinking to the table so that you're maybe aware that you're dealing with a placebo effect here um, or maybe you haven't, you're not comfortable getting to the point where you're willing to acknowledge that you may be about to believe in something or you may be believing in something that's untrue. Um, but to the point where you can say, right, I'd like to believe this is true, whether this is true or not. Um, I've done my due diligence to ensure that no one's taken advantage of me here, that I'm not believing this as a consequence of the influence of a charismatic person or, or you know, because people that I have thrown in with believe this or because it's, um, I, I was going to say because it's um, has an emotional impact, but that's often why we believe things, isn't it? Um, and I think that can be a very good reason to believe things. But do you get what I'm getting at? I like there's like there's a lot of nuance there and little things to consider. Yes. But that's why I say it's personal, because a lot of that is going to be different from person to person as well, um, because like I might have very negative uh, consequences for something that another person uh, might not, because there's something else that they have within their faculty or within their understanding that stops that going so badly for them you know of course that's where you get into the issue of um certain things that seem to be predisposed towards being destructive 
um, which is where we get into the cult territory. And I wouldn't include cults in what I was saying before. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Sorry, that was. Like <laughs> That's a right. Long... I have about 50, yeah. 50 things to say in response Let's do to it. that. Let's do it. <laughs> um, a lot of threads to pick up on. One is I love. Sorry. No, no, no. It's great. It's juicy. I love how many times you said nuance because that is absolutely the word that I'm going for. And that could be an alternate title to my podcast, Nuance Central. I like it. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what's missing with all the polarization and the extremism is a, a lack of nuance. And the other word you mentioned a couple of times is due diligence. So as a former lawyer, you know, due diligence is speaking my language. And, <laughs> and that's what I think you need to bring a healthy dose. I, I, I'm more comfortable with the terminology of nuance and due diligence than skepticism because I have this personal association of skepticism as um, not, not the word itself, but people who call themselves skeptics not mm. you, but other people who have called themselves <laughs> skeptics have Nicely taken done. what I consider to be <laughs> quite extreme positions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I love the, the due diligence and the nuance. And it's interesting because one of the slightly prob problematic groups that I studied with for a while, one of their teachings was around understanding beliefs and how they affect you and how you can change your beliefs and that will change your experience of the world. And that, you know, it's good to examine your beliefs and the effect that they have on you, which I think is for the most part, helpful to understand that you could, you might have beliefs that you've been indoctrinated into through your family and your culture and society, but you can also choose to adopt a new belief and then see how, if that gives you a better experience of the world or, or mm. worse experience of the world. So that's been an interesting one to play with. And the, one of the beliefs that they, this group suggested trying on was the concept of personal responsibility, which is something I wanted to talk to you about of the idea that you're personally responsible for your experience of the world, which is closely tied to the concept that you create your own reality, uh, which can start to get problematic. Um, but yeah, that was one of my questions did you have much of that concept of personal responsibility for everything and we create our own reality through through our thoughts and our beliefs? And do you think overall that's a good concept, a harmful concept or a nuanced concept? <laughs> um, I think it's definitely a nuanced approach to it. I think with the idea of we create our own reality, you can come at that from a few different points of view. If you're coming at that from like a law of attraction point of view, um, then you would have to sidestep a lot of the faulty scientific evidence for it. Um, but again, uh, as long as you can mitigate the potential damage of believing that um, in, in the way that a lot of people I've seen do believe in the law of attraction, there could be a way to believe in it without it going badly. I haven't seen it very often, if I'm honest. Um, um, but when it comes to personal responsibility, I think personal responsibility and we create our own reality as an idea are, they are somewhat related, but they're very different. I think the idea of we create our own reality or you create your own reality, which is often the way that I've heard it said, it, it gets a touch solipsistic. 
Um, and that can be quite uh, an issue in practice. Well, I think it's a perfectly fine uh, philosophical position to take up. I, I feel like in practice, uh, especially when you mesh it with a lot of the other beliefs within sort of new agey circles, it can go dodgy. I've seen so many times people talking about how basically no one else has any free will because you're the one that's manifesting their behavior. And so you can get your ex back or make someone sort of mind control someone using the law of attraction. And, you know, that's, that's, that's not personal responsibility. Then that's you believing you're in control that like, there's a difference there. Um, but as far as personal responsibility goes, I think it's like, I think it, it's a question of integrity oftentimes. And we all have different, um, we all have different relationships with, the world and we all have different values and I think a big part of existing in the world is being able to respect everybody's values in one way or another obviously there's things that are overtly destructive to our society and there are things that are constructive with our society but I think personal responsibility is a huge part of what makes the world function and I think that we should wherever possible encourage people to do that rather than um, as you see in more destructive circles um, make it so that there is a uh, a less of an emphasis on the person taking responsibility and more of a focus on accountability to use the word that I've seen crop up in the left quite often um you know do, do you get what I'm getting at with that yeah and it's interesting because something I've noticed is this is one of those things that seems like a, a spiritual concept or a personal development concept but you cannot divorce it from the political concepts that are related mm -hmm. and when you when you take personal responsibility to an extreme position, you basically get libertarianism from a political mm. perspective. And that's something I really noticed over the last couple of years of watching the new age kind of get, it seemed to me radicalized to the far right. And like, how, the, mm. how did this happen? I thought of all these people as hippies and I associate hippies with the left. And then I started mm. looking at the ideologies that we'd been playing around with and things like personal responsibility and law of attraction, realizing that those are much more naturally aligned with right-wing ideology. And when you take personal responsibility to an extreme, it becomes very much a, a, a right-wing concept of, uh, and it includes ableism and victim blaming and that kind of thing. So, mm. and another thing that was interesting talking about the intersection of personal responsibility and the law of attraction is at, at its peak for me, when I was into both of those things, I got to a point where I felt so personally responsibility for creating my reality that I was scared to try and manifest anything because I thought I was so powerful that it wouldn't be fair to other people because I would be manif by manifesting, I would, I would be taking more than my share of something, or I would be, I'd be somehow energetically wow. manipulating other people to give me what I want. And I didn't feel comfortable with that because I have integrity, but I, I didn't realize how kind of fucked up I was in my head to be thinking that I had that much power over other people. It's, it's a strange place this stuff can lead you to. It really, really. is. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm a person who naturally kind of is good at manifesting for like, I don't know if that's a thing or not. <laughs> it's something I've really been trying to figure out. And I've just always been naturally effortless at manifesting. And uh, over, you know, recent times, I've been really thinking, 
is that a thing? Is it just that my brain thinks that's a thing? Is it just that I have an enormous amount of privilege because of my position as a, a white person, you know, with a good education and a profession and all that kind of stuff? Or is it just that I, it's how I view the world that I think I'm good at manifesting, therefore I experience the world in that way? Um, and I see little things as evidence that I'm good at manifesting. And I actually, uh, quite a few years ago, created a program that was basically trying to teach other people how to manifest in the way that I was doing it. And I've never watched or read The Secret or been kind of interested in that side of it. It was more that I had my own process and I decided to try and reverse engineer and be like, oh, I'm naturally good at manifesting. I wonder what the process is that le that enables me to be that. And I would think about times that I manifested, I say that word in quotes, that um, something good happened to me. And I tried to figure out how that happened. And I was very much of the, of the idea, and I still am, that it's not just through intention or vibration or whatever, but you actually have to, you know, do things in the world to make things happen. Um, so it was very much a combination of intention and action and and a bunch of other things because I ended up coming up with what I called my 17 step process for consciously creating change which was my way of saying manifesting because even back then I saw manifesting as a problematic concept and I'd really tried to incorporate understanding you know people with trauma might have trouble manifesting because of their trauma and you know, I, I really tried to have a very inclusive mindset about it and understanding that it wasn't going to be as easy for some people as others and understanding why that was. And I tried teaching it as a workshop for a while. And then I stopped, even though it was quite popular and quote unquote successful, because I just didn't feel good about it ethically, because I still wasn't sure that it was replicatable. And that's one of my kind of bugbears with a lot of the stuff that gets taught in this way is that I think people who are naturally good at something are trying to teach something that's not actually replicatable. Have you experienced anything like that? Oof. I mean, in a sense, there's a touch of that, I guess, in like the Teal Swan thing. Um, but that there's a lot of caveats there talking about nuance. There will be a lot of caveats there um, in hashing that one out. Um, but maybe we can circle back to Teal Swan because I'm sure there's a few things to yeah. discuss there. What I came to, the conclusion that I came to and why I stopped teaching that is that I realized that to be able to, I wish there was another word, but manifest, you required a certain degree of self-worth as mm. a base. And what I realized was that the people who were trying to, you know, create things in their life, create positive things in their life, were struggling to create them because of a lack of self-worth. And I hit a stumbling block because I was like, I naturally have good self-worth. I don't know why. I'm really, you know, grateful that I do. It's just something that I was born with. I could look at the epigenetic reasons for it, but that's another topic. But um but I do, and therefore I feel worthy, and therefore it's easier for me to create things of worth in my life. And, and I realized I didn't know how to teach self-worth, and I still don't. And that's why I'm not teaching these other things that are kind of manifesting related, because I don't know how to teach self-worth. Mm. And 
I think that's like an ethical issue of if you, if the practice that you're teaching only works for somebody who has a healthy degree of self-worth and you can't help people to achieve a healthy sense of, you know, stable self-worth, then you're messing with, you don't know what kind of mental health issues people have, Mm -hmm. what kind of trauma they have, what kind of neurodivergence they have. And, and even more recently, I was mentoring a group and I wasn't teaching manifesting, but I was getting them to do shadow work and inner child work and mirror work and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And again, came up against this self-worth issue. And it was like, oh, you can't do shadow work with someone if they don't have a stable base of self-worth to begin with. And you have to develop a healthy sense of self-worth before it's safe to do shadow work. And mm. then I was like, well, I can't do this anymore because I don't know how to do this. And also I'll say the type of shadow work I was getting them to do is very different to the type that you were doing with Teal Swan, which just sounds terrible to be honest. (laughs) But um, yeah, so that's my experience with like trying to do these spiritual personal development practices with integrity. And every time it just comes to the conclusion that you can't do it with integrity, not in a group setting. Like you could work with somebody one-on-one if you are a trained mental health professional and help them Mm -hmm. through these things. But it's not something that I believe is safe to do in, in a group situation or even like in a in a self-healing situation, which is one of the questions that I came up with after I sent you the list was, do you know about yeah. LaPera, the holistic psychologist? Have you followed that whole drama? I, I do know about her. I actually did a video uh, live stream uh, talking about her a little bit. Oh, I missed to. that one. Yeah. So um, what yeah. do you think about that? <laughs> I think the trouble is when you're self-healing, you have to contend with all of your own blind spots and all of your own, you know, lack of, of knowledge and pain, potential trauma. You know, trauma is a bit of a buzzword at the moment. There's a whole industry springing up around it. Um, obviously, trauma, there, there are different kinds of trauma. Trauma is obviously a real thing. And yeah, I, I wonder whether I heard someone said to me recently that the big T trauma and little T trauma have been conflated to where now um, they're treated as the same thing. So, you know, there's, there's, there's less of a distinction between PTSD and trauma that hasn't caused, um, you know, that, that disorder to, to occur. Um, yeah, but um, in terms of in terms of uh, the holistic psychologist, um, I feel like the self healing thing is it's it's tricky. It's such a tricky thing, and this is the thing with Teal Swan as well. Mental health care in so many places is not accessible so easily for so many people. It's not something that is readily available for so many people, and when it is, it's not always at the highest quality. So what you then have is loads and loads of people who need help but can't get it. So what they do is look for help in the only way they can. And then they go to the internet and then there's people like Teal Swan and holistic psychologists and people like that who are saying these things that sound great uh, sometimes and or sound true at the very least. Um, And and oftentimes in my experience, sort of oversimplify things, overgeneralize things, lots of Barnum statements uh, with this kind of stuff as well. 
and um the the trouble is that again if you take this stuff and then you try like shadow work for example and i like what you said about the self-worth thing with shadow work i think something i would add to that as well is that a level of self-knowledge is almost a prerequisite i think for anything like that um like if i did shadow work, when when i was doing shadow work with the teal swan thing uh, aside from it being you know, very bad, going very badly for me. I didn't have a level of self-awareness that I like to think I have now, having been through counselling. Um, and it's the counselling that has helped me get there. And the thing about counselling is you've got another person who's trained, who knows what humans tend to do in a given situation, how humans tend to respond to a given situation. And they're able to give you that feedback. They're able to give you those, you know, that that um, listening ear, that, that um, advice, maybe not advice, is the word but you know that that feedback and um and and get you to look at things in a different way or look in places that you wouldn't have been comfortable looking on your own or wouldn't even have known to look on your own and i think that's the limitation of self-healing is that exact problem is that when you're on your own you're perhaps same problem with intuition uh, or, or intuition using intuition to determine truth and um take what resonates same issue there you you end up potentially creating a self-sealing approach to truth, a self-sealing approach to healing, wherein you only prop up your own biases, you only prop up your own point of view, your own beliefs, your own feelings. And the, the change that occurs potentially, and it might not be the case in every case, uh, but I, I would say probably would be the case for someone, the kind of person I'm thinking of, as in the kind of person I was way back when, um, the changes that are positive are going to be minor um, and the changes that are going to be really, really worthwhile um, without that level of self-worth that you said there, without a certain level of, of self-knowledge, you know, self-awareness um, that, that does come from something like counselling. It may come from other places, but that's one place I've found from my personal experience that it's come from, you know, without that, the, the risk is, I think, greater than the reward uh, potentially. Yeah, because you don't know when you're deluding yourself. Mm -hmm, you can exactly. just get into this spiral of self-delusion that has no end or the end is in, you know, severe mental health issues without having, you know, another person to, to reflect back on you where you might be delusional. Mm, yeah. And yeah. counsel counseling is another example of where this stuff gets political because in Australia where I live, we're really lucky in the sense that we have some degree of socialized medicine and healthcare, and the government will subsidize access to counseling through a mental health care plan that gets you 10 sessions per year subsidized counseling. And during the pandemic, they added another 10 sessions because they recognized that people's mental health was really struggling because we had a prolonged lockdown. And so I, I was eligible for 20 sessions of subsidized telehealth counseling like online counseling last year from the government and obviously a lot of places don't have access to that which is a, a, an access and equity issue but it's also a political issue because so much of the right-wing ideology is vehemently against mm -hmm. you know government subsidized health care mm. yeah it is and uh, i think you know oftentimes it's hard, it's hard to get political here and, and not because I don't I try and I try to avoid politics on the channel um so it's hard to to 
navigate this without obviously coming down on one side but I honestly think that it's this thing as well it f- feeds into this this conversation of like how whenever people um you know people say oh if if uh people are given benefits or whatever then they just won't work and in my experience that's not the case you know if people are given support there is a point where when they reach a certain level of of mental wellness if you like i fucking hate that word i'm not going to use that word sorry i'm I'm allowed to swear yeah yeah no this is not suitable for work or children podcast okay cool um so i won't be using that word again um but yeah like mental health you reach a point a certain point with your mental health where you feel capable of it there is there is that you know looking at maslow's hierarchy of needs there is that need to you know give back if you like um at a point if i'm remembering the needs correctly um so so yeah that idea that people are, are just taking and not giving back uh is is built on uh perhaps something that's not so well informed with regards to how people tend to respond to things um but yeah i could be wrong there but that's my take uh, on oh that, no really. i totally agree with you and and you know living in a in a semi-socialist country we got a lot of government benefits last year during because during the lockdown a lot of people couldn't work myself included because the work that i do as a cranial sacral therapist is is hands-on you absolutely cannot socially distance i'm putting my hands on people in a small room so i couldn't do that for most of last year and i received government subsidy for that and also i was having to homeschool my children at the same time so i couldn't have worked anyway i couldn't wait to get back to work. I was dying to get back to work as soon as, you know, it was safe to do so because thankfully in Australia, we have really almost no coronavirus because we were able to close our borders. You did um, it very well over there. Oh, yeah. I'm so jealous. So grateful, <laughs> like so unbelievably grateful to be here. And that's another issue because the lockdown um, was very unpopular amongst the new age spiritual crew, which was another reason that I split from them because I fucking loved the lockdown. I was so glad for the <laughs> lockdown. It made me feel so safe. And I am so grateful that we were able to do that. But that's another topic. But see, that's the two the the two different sides to see the false dichotomy of love versus fear in this context, isn't it? Yeah. And I and I really realized that for some people the lockdown made them feel scared because they felt oppressed by their own government and and I really get talking to some of my clients who who had that position and when I work with a client you know it's a politics free zone I hold a very neutral space there's no judgment that's part of how the therapy works mm. but having observed things that that my clients said about how the lockdown made them feel often they came from um cultural backgrounds of coming from countries that did have actual fascist governments of whom they or their parents or grandparents, you know, had to flee. And so for them that awakened this kind of epigenetic trauma, like real trauma of being oppressed by a government. And so they, it was much more likely for them to perceive the lockdown as being oppressed by a government because they had these other experiences um, in their family of, of really legitimately being oppressed by a government. And so I was very understanding that they, that they had an experience of fear of the government during the lockdown. But then other new age people who are just like into this concept of like sovereign, the sovereign citizen movement, have you come across mm-hmm. that? Oh yeah. 
yeah, they were like, fuck the government. The government doesn't exist. It's not legitimate. And we're all going to buy guns and go live on a, a property. And I was like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When it gets to, we're going to buy guns and go and hole up somewhere, you know, it's gone too far. <laughs> yeah. And especially because in Australia, we've done such a good job of getting rid of guns, just like we got rid of coronavirus. Like we had a mass shooting in 1996 at Port Arthur in Tasmania, and then the government basically banned guns. They did a gun buyback scheme where they bought all the guns. And we've had very few, very, very few mass shootings since then. And I'm so grateful. Again, it's another reason that I, even though I am American, that I'm not raising my kids in America because I don't want them to have active shooter drills at school and to be worried about that stuff. So yeah, as soon as Australians were talking about buying guns, yeah, I knew I was in the wrong place. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear part two of this interview, you can subscribe to the podcast for $3.99 per month to receive this and other bonus content. I'll release at least one subscriber only episode per month, probably more. See the link in the show notes to subscribe. If you'd like to hear more from Andy, you can find him on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Andy the fellows. And please consider subscribing to his Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Andy fellows. Many of the books and websites Andy referenced are linked on his website, andyfellows.wordpress.com forward slash resources. And a reminder to check Instagram for a live chat between me and Andy coming soon. You can find us at Andy Fellows or at the baby in the bathwater.